Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We do love a historical analogy on this podcast. And so today we're not going to talk about last night's debate. We're going to talk about two general elections that happened in 1974 and see if there are parallels with now. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. To help me go through all of this, we have Helen Thompson, we have Chris Brooke, we also have Peter Sloman, who is a historian of 20th century Britain and of that institution that used to be called the Liberal Party. And that's what we're going to call it in this podcast, because that's what it was in 1974. So as I said, there were two elections, one in February, one in October. February was the last winter election in this country until the one that's coming up in a few weeks. And I did check the weather. It was really cold, snowy, icy in Scotland. But turnout was up. So it doesn't necessarily follow that when it gets colder, people don't vote. It was an election that was called by Tory Prime Minister, Edward Heath, and it's known as a Who Governs Britain election. I mean, you might think every election is a Who Governs Britain election, but what it meant was not which party, but Heath tried to frame it as, do you want to be governed conventionally by parliamentary democracy? Or, as he said, do you want to put the fate of this country in the hands of what he called a left-wing clique, and a left-wing clique in hock to the trade unions? And the background context was a series of strikes, and then there was a looming confrontation with the National Union of Mine Workers, which actually coincided with the launch of the campaign. So there are some parallels with now, including the fact that a Conservative Prime Minister was effectively asking for more authority in the form of a larger majority. But that makes it a bit more like 2017 than now, I think. Theresa May like Heath, had a, a, just about a working majority, as Heath did in February, and was asking for more, unlike Johnson, who didn't have any functioning majority at all, and was just asking, is asking, for the ability to govern in the first place. Does it make sense to think of that one as a Who Governs Britain election, never mind this one? I mean, that was how Heath tried to frame it. In his first election address, he said, you know, the decent, quiet people of Britain have got to stand up to the factional bullies. It's a complicated question because of the fact that this was a government that was into its fourth year in office. So you expect actually a government before the Fixed Term Parliament Act to be looking to try to hold an election in the fourth year. And four-year terms were the norm, but winter elections were not, not the norm. So yeah, exactly. it, would, it would be it would, spring. It would have been spring or, or June, I would, yeah, June, I would have said. And there had been pressure in the Conservative Party sort of in the run-up to sort of Christmas to hold an election. And that was in part, I think, because the economic situation had, had deteriorated significantly, but because of this outside shock, the, the Yom Kippur War, which had led to a big increase in the price of um, oil, and that's where this declaring a state of emergency, which Heath had done, had begun. And then he got himself in a position where, after the, the NUM called for a strike, that a few days later he said, we're going to have an election on this, who governs the country? But the fact was that his his policies weren't really lined up with the way he wanted to hold the election because he was essentially trying to stop the NUM claiming a sizable pay increase as part of his own government's incomes policy. So it had 
three stages. And in the third stage, he said that what the, or he and the National Coal Board said that what the NUM, the National Union of Miners, were demanding went beyond what was allowed under stage three of the incomes policy. But he hadn't actually got things lined up because the pay board was not that long into the election about to say, well, actually what the, the miners were asking was perfectly within the limits of the third stage of the incomes policy. So actually, his justification for the election pretty much fell away within a couple of weeks of it starting. And that's before we get on to the matter of whether he really could line up the miners with the Labour Party, which I don't think he succeeded in doing either. But that's why I think that any comparison with Johnson, say, trying to frame a people versus parliament election, which you could argue hasn't actually been that successful so far, at least that narrative in its own terms can hold up. Whereas this one falls away very quickly. Looking back at the February 1974 election, it is the role of the pay board that seems so striking. I mean, I think it was striking at the time, but it's even more striking in retrospect. The key figure on the pay board was its deputy chair, Derek Robinson, who was an Oxford economist. As Helen said, he wrote the report of the pay board uh, that came out in favour of the miners' claim. What looks so striking with a long look back is that the pay board was an institution set up by the Conservative Prime Minister, and the key economist on it was a Labour economist, very well connected with the trade union movement, who had himself been a former advisor to Barbara Castle. And it seems inconceivable to me now that the election now could turn on the academic authority and expertise of a Labour Party-connected figure who had been appointed to a post by Boris Johnson. It points to something completely different about the culture of expertise, of economic expertise. Of course, when Derek Robinson's report was published and he he went in front of the press to defend it, his father was a, a Barnsley miner. And of course, he was accused of bias, and he insisted that the report would stand on its own merits, and, and he would defend it, and it was the facts that had led to the conclusions and not his own political inclinations. But nevertheless, it seems extraordinary that that kind of institution played such a role in the election, and it's impossible to imagine something like that happening again today. Is it possible to imagine any body, I mean, even the, the phrase, the pay board, takes us way back into the past, any body having in this election, having that kind of ability to just put a spanner in the works? I think probably not. I mean, I think there was a possibility that the Office of Budget Responsibility might have done so a couple of weeks ago when it was due to publish an updated fiscal forecast at the time of the budget. Both of those were cancelled. If that forecast had been published, we might well have seen budget deficit figures back up to 50 billion or so. As the Without IRS. wanting to be conspiratorial, why were they cancelled? Well, they were cancelled. There was an election on. Because there was an election on. Because that didn't seem to work in 74. Absolutely. I mean, did anyone try and tell Derek Robinson to hold fire? No, I mean, I think it was always, um, the, the report of the pay board was always going to be part of the election. There'd been the earlier report on the general question of pay, and then the specific question of miners' pay was referred to the pay board, and that was all happening in the weeks in the run-up to the election campaign. So all this was, all this was going together. But if the OBR had published, I mean, you know, the climate, as Chris was saying, feels so different. I mean, the OBR still has quite a lot of clout, I think, and it gets taken pretty seriously. It's, it's seen as a pretty non-partisan organisation, I think. Yeah. But it's still really hard to imagine it having the effect that this had in 74. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the way it would have made a difference is that Boris Johnson wants to turn the focus of the election away from the Conservative government's record, away from questions about austerity, and to say that he will preside over spending increases, tax cuts, and increased deficit figures would have made that much harder. 
I think, though, that to concentrate on the payboard as some kind of technocratic, if you like, intervention in all, all this, and I think that you can't actually reduce the payboard to being something that's technocratic, but leaving that aside, I think misses the point that it's the politics of it that don't make any sense, because Heath is basically calling an election on defending this incomes policy that he has put in place, and he only put the incomes policy in place in 1972 as a complete U-turn from what he the Conservatives had both promised in 1970 and that had tried to govern without for the first two years of the Heath government. So if you go back to the Conservative Manifesto in 1970, it's essentially saying, let's leave all that corporatist income policy stuff behind. We're going to have a, a more market-orientated approach. It sells the man, the sort of was, I think, the, the phrase that was used to sort of capture all, all this. And the fact that then a Conservative Prime Minister basically having retreated back into Labour territory, then decided to hold an election on an issue that was much more friendly actually to the Labour Party than it was to the Conservative Party. It was strategic madness. I mean, even if you leave aside the contingencies of what then happened during the campaign, and that's why there were people who would become what came to be called the Thatcherite side of the party but couldn't be considered Thatcherite then because it wasn't formed enough who were completely exasperated with Heath because he said okay we may need an election but call an election on a Labour issue you're out of your mind. And it was also an election with Europe in the background so we had entered the European community the previous year after absolutely attritional parliamentary battles. During the campaign the other intervention that it's known for was Enoch Powell effectively telling people not to vote for his former party the Conservative Party Again, is it possible to imagine? I mean, Farage is the obvious analogy here, but Farage is, to coin a phrase, no Enoch Powell. And Farage could, I mean, he said so many things that it wouldn't have the same effect anyway. I mean, Powell's intervention was pretty forensic. I don't think that's a word that you'd use about Farage. But to imagine anyone, Farage or anyone, having that kind of effect, if he was to finally throw all his toys out of the pram and say, actually, I've decided to my people, you need to vote against Johnson. It's not possible, is it? I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the asymmetry is that Farage is the leader of a party. It's a strange kind of party, but it is a political party that is running candidates. And the significance of his intervention in the election turns on how many candidates will the Brexit party run, where will they stand, do they have a chance of either denying seats to the Conservatives because they allow Labour members to hold on, or will they contribute to a Labour massacre by tipping various Labour Conservative marginals to the Conservatives. It's a story about electioneering on the ground and public opinion and what's happening there. Powell was a one-man band. He'd been substantially isolated in the upper echelons of the Conservative Party ever since the notorious Rivers of Blood speech a few years before. He hadn't served in the Conservative government after 1970. He also had form on swinging elections because some of the political scientists think that, in fact, although the Conservative Party cast him out into outer darkness after the Rivers of Blood speech, nevertheless, the perception that the Conservatives were tougher on immigration than Labour is thought by some political scientists to have had a key role in generating swings, in particular in the Midlands, that helped Heath get his majority. So you have this figure who may have swung the 1970 election, still on the back benches, who makes this intervention, which again... Some people have argued, Douglas E. Schoen, an American political scientist, published a book on this, argued that also helped to swing the 1974 election for the Labour Party. I don't think Powell ever endorsed Labour by name, but he did say that voters should vote for a party, and then he 
read out what the Labour Party Europe policy was. And in fact, I think he said he voted for Labour by post. He did. Before he, said, he, before he, made he said he'd made a postal vote for Labour. Yeah. I think the, the point about the 1970 election is a very important one, because that is really the first election in which Labour faces the kind of working class backlash over immigration, but also over crime, over tax, over the permissive society that we've become so familiar with in contemporary discussions of sort of left behind areas. And, you know, lots of working class voters either abstain in 1970 or vote for Ted Heath and the Conservatives who go hard on the prices issue. By 1974, it's clear that the Conservatives haven't solved inflation, that they presided over tax cuts and spending changes, which have not been particularly progressive, given big tax giveaways to the rich. And Labour is able to revive those kind of classic class issues and mobilise its, its working class vote in a way that it hasn't really been able to do since. And again, it is notable that when Heath made his original pitch, so his first election broadcast, which is the Who Governs Britain one, where he says, do you want a Conservative government or do you want this left-wing clique? But when he says why you need a Conservative government with the parliamentary authority to act, he specifically says it is to act on inflation. And again, to me, that's not a great pitch because it's like you couldn't deal with inflation with a workable majority, you're going to deal with it with a slightly bigger majority. To me, as a offer to the electorate, it looks a bit thin, because it looks like you're saying, we lack the will to do it, but just give us a few more seats and we'll crack it. Well, also, I think there's the fact on, on the inflation issue is, is that even before the pay board report comes in, they know they're going to give the miners this pay rise. They are trying to hold an election to legitimate giving the miners a pay rise. And indeed, Enoch Powell calls them on this in at least one of his interventions. I think the other thing, just to go back to the Farage parallel, though, that makes it impossible is is that Powell's act was at least informally coordinated with Wilson. So it isn't just some random intervention by Powell even having the singular personality and isolated to the way in which he was in the Conservative Party, as Chris was describing, is Wilson knows that it's coming. He knows that it benefits labour for it to come and it is a an attempt by both of them to make the election about European community membership and holding a referendum. Farage did say last night he thought Corbyn was the better debater. I don't know <laughs> if that's the beginning of some amazing rapprochement. I doubt it. As you said Helen it was the, the bigger backdrop was a state of emergency effectively. It was tough times right we're, we're embarking on the mid-1970s which is the the really scary bit of British policy. You know, we're a year away from people in London clubs chuntering about a coup with Lord Mountbatten as the new head of state and tanks in the streets in London, which never happened for our younger listeners. But this election is happening. It, we're not in a state of emergency, but there was this feeling that British government was kind of breaking down. A few weeks ago, even, some of the parliamentary scenes gave people a sense that there was something quite fragile and not just fractious, but actually potentially slightly dangerous at work. And having a winter election symbolises that. I mean, that's part of what a winter election means. It's kind of, we can't wait for the sun to come out. It's too serious. I mean, do we know enough? Was there a panicky air around the 74 election? It feels like a slightly panicky act by Heath. But was there a feeling in the sort of political establishment that things were quite hairy? Absolutely. I mean, the head of the, the civil service, Sir William Armstrong, who sometimes got called the deputy prime minister, such was said to be his influence over Heath, he had a nervous breakdown in the middle of the campaign. 
to the point in which at one point he was found naked, you know, lying in his office and was muttering or loudly muttering about apocalypses and the end of the world and the battle between good and evil. And he was taken home. I think he went to somewhere in the Caribbean in order to um, recover. But he, I mean, there was it a, is lucky this was pre-Facebook Live. <laughs> but there was a sense. I mean, he, you know, he was taking it, Armstrong was taking it into this you know, near biblical state of apocalypse, what was happening. But there was a general sense that the whole way of Western economic life since the recovery in the 1950s was on a knife edge and in some sense falling apart because it wasn't just that Britain was having an economic crisis and the government's authority was being challenged by the, the National Union of Mine Workers. So I think that Heath massively over, you know, inflated that. It was that there was an international um, crisis because of the consequences of the Yom Kippur War and the fact that a number of countries, not actually Britain, were subject to an oil embargo from OPEC. Indeed, you know, actually, in order to try to protect Britain from the worst of the economic consequences, Heath had changed the policy that the Wilson government had pursued during the 1967 Arab-Israeli war from being essentially pro-Israel in 1967 to being pro-Arab so that Britain could avoid the oil embargo. So while Britain got hurt by the oil prices, it didn't get hurt by the oil embargo. And yet presumably, as with all elections, foreign policy was not prominent in the campaign. Do we? Not as far as I know. But remember that this is a three-week campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I noticed that when I was reading about it, I thought, wow, that was... Because we're still three weeks from our election, aren't we? So in 1974 terms, we haven't started yet. That's correct. Um, And, I mean, what's remarkable is that Heath wasn't even even able to keep who governs as the dominant issue for three weeks. So it's no surprise that other issues are going to come in in the campaign as long as this one. But that's because I think he couldn't keep it for three weeks, but that's because it was incoherent to start with. There was never any possibility. It was just a complete strategic mistake on Heath's part to think the election could be fought in that way. And we don't know yet, and Johnson last night was hammering it to the point of absurdity, but he's just about held the line. And in the debate, he made it all about... Brexit with me or two referendums with that guy. Joe Swinson wasn't there last night. The 1974 election was a Liberal surge election. So though there could only be two Prime Ministers as this time, probably, the Liberals under Jeremy Thorpe, who people might be most familiar with now because of the TV series last year, so uh, Hugh Grant, really did well. Not in seat terms, but in vote share terms. They, they, they broke the two-party stranglehold on the voters, not on the parliament. Peter, what was the pitch? What was Thorpe's offer? I guess the Liberal pitch in, in 74 is very much that if you want to end this confrontation between capital and Labour, you need a party which is an honest broker between them. And to say that the Conservatives are in the pockets of big business, the CBI, and Labour's in the pockets of the TUC, and the Liberals can, can bring the country together. Whether that is an intellectually coherent pitch is open to debate. But there's a case for saying that in a context of the 1970s, bringing in constitutional reforms, bringing in PR, bringing in devolution, might have changed the culture of British governance and placed the kind of corporatist structure which had developed in the 60s and early 70s on firmer institutional foundations. And Thorpe did seem like a slightly different kind of leader back then, didn't he? I mean, with hindsight, he doesn't look that different. (laughs) But in the context of the 1970s, he was in some ways, a a different kind of campaigner, fresher? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's an extraordinary personal campaign by Jeremy Thorpe because he had only held his seat in North Devon by a majority of 300 
1970. And so even though the Liberals were up from about 10% to about 20% in the opinion polls, he insisted on spending most of the campaign in Barnstaple and installed a fibre optic cable from Barnstaple to the National Liberal Club so that he could address press conferences down a phone line. Those were the um, days. And, and I guess that sense of physical distance allowed him to present himself as being above the fray, outside the kind of two-party slanging match in the way that many Lib Dem leaders have, have done since. Peter, you will know the numbers better than I will. I mean, how close did the Liberals come to in terms of a breakthrough in seats? I mean, we know they got you know a little under 20% of the vote and their seats went up, I think, from something like 11 to 14. But, I mean, is it the case that had they got 22 23% there would have been loads of seats going Liberal? Or was it just the electoral system was so stacked against them that they could have piled up many more votes and still not really got nowhere. I think what the Liberals do for the first time in 1974, at least since the Second World War, is establish a lot of solid second places in Conservative-held seats. So they're in second place across much of the south of England, in some parts of southwest London, some parts of, of rural Scotland. But they are not generally within, within striking distance. And so whereas the hope is that one more heave in October 74 will allow them to make that, that breakthrough. They haven't really got on top of the kind of targeting techniques which they develop in the 80s and 90s, which would have enabled them to turn that support into a larger parliamentary cohort. They needed to go beyond Barnstable for the Absolutely. campaign. And of course, Thorpe tries that over the summer when he has this notorious hovercraft tour of seaside resorts along the south coast, which he sees as prime liberal targets, and the hovercraft breaks down, and he has to be sort of towed into, uh, I can't remember whether it's Poole or Weymouth Harbour, but it's a pretty, pretty embarrassing incident. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was also, there are many parallels because what you've just described about the Liberals, now Liberal Democrats, it actually shapes the electoral map to this day, where they come second. It was also an election where, not for the first time, but most clearly, parallel to now, Scotland... Wales, and above all Northern Ireland, become different elections. So Northern Ireland becomes basically another country in electoral terms. It's the rise of the SNP in Scotland, who do have a breakthrough in seat terms. So I think they double their votes, but they they increase their seats. They go from one to seven, I think. Yeah, so the, the weirdness of the electoral system that the Liberals somehow never make their breakthrough, but the SNP almost benefit from first past the post. And Plaid Cymru pick up a seat. A seat, yeah. In Wales. And so we're still living with the legacy of the 74 election. That seems to me completely to be parallel with now. We've got separate elections going on in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. Well, I think the Northern Ireland one is the one where there's literally no way back for the the dominant Westminster parties into Northern Irish um, politics. And indeed, it plays its part of, obviously, in what Enoch Powell does in that respect, because he's going to become an Ulster Unionist as well. The context in Northern Ireland is the the Sunningdale Agreement, which Heath had worked on in 
I think it was agreed in the middle of 1973, and it involves setting up, I think it's called the Irish Council, and the Unionists are bitterly opposed to that. So there's an effectively anti-Sunningdale Unionist coalition that win most of the seats in Northern Ireland at that election. And then the Labour government inherits the problem of Northern Ireland and the council is brought to an end by a general strike by unionists in Northern Ireland in the summer of 1974. But before that, both main parties did fight general elections in Northern Ireland and there was at least some sense. Is that right? Are you looking sceptical? Certainly the Conservatives The Conservatives did. I don't think Labour did because the SDLP did. But they were closely affiliated, were they? The big development in recent times then was that the Ulster Unionists stopped taking the Conservative whip. So they started sitting as an independent bloc. The Unionists still won the lion's share of the seats in Northern Ireland. But that, I think, was what set the, the Conservative Party and Ulster Unionism drifting apart from one another. Looking back, I think I mean one of the issues in unionism at the time, there's not a direct parallel, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning, is that a disagreement of what the future of Northern Ireland should be, that's to say, should there be the return of some kind of devolved Stormont government, or should Northern Ireland be more firmly integrated into the United Kingdom? And that was the conflict that Enoch Powell had with his new unionist friends as he moved into the, the orbit of Ulster unionism. Was Northern Ireland an integral part of the UK to be governed along with the rest of the UK, or was the hope to restore something like the old devolved administration? And uh, Powell being on the integrated side. Absolutely. What was the SNP's offer? How did the SNP manage to do so well in 74? I suppose Nottie Oil was the centrepiece of the SNP's pitch. You know, it's Scotland's oil in a context where oil prices have quadrupled in the autumn of 1973. The argument is that if that oil wealth is used for investment in the Scottish economy, for investment in housing and public services, then the kind of inequalities which are starting to emerge between England and Scotland in a context of deindustrialization can be corrected and, and reversed. I think there's something else interesting about Scottish nationalism in the election, which is that some Scottish nationalists tell a story about how the national movement had been around for a long time, you know, stretching back a long way, but certainly with some kind of organisation since the 1930s. And the 1974 breakthrough is presented as the culmination of a long march. Revisionist historians think that's not quite right, that actually nationalism was largely irrelevant in Scotland. Uh, and then it just suddenly bursts on the scene in, in 1974. It, it comes from almost nowhere. And you're kind of looking at it in the wrong framing if you think that it's the culmination of something rather than the start of something new. I think the other issue which is interesting in relation to now is is that some of it comes from actually the European Community issue because if you go back to 1972 in the European Communities Act and you look at Scottish MPs from all parties, a majority of them actually vote against joining the European Community. At that point, to be Scottish nationalist was to be anti European community and to think of this as something that had been imposed upon Scotland by the parties um, in Westminster and you can see this issue reappear when it gets to the 1975 referendum because the Scottish not just actually the Scottish nationalists but particularly Scottish nationalists are very keen on having that vote counted in ways that make it clear what the vote is in Scotland 
And the vote in Scotland was majority against. I mean, that's the big flip, yeah. right? If you map the 75 referendum against the more recent one, many parts of the country literally turned on their heads, didn't they? The most Eurosceptic bit, Scotland, is now the most pro. And the most pro, which was the north of England, is now the most Eurosceptic. And I think that if you think about it in terms of, like, then the Welsh situation is, is the oil can't actually be a sufficient explanation because you wouldn't really then expect to, there to be some gains. That wasn't Plaid's offer. Plaid. The Welsh oil is our oil. But the thing is, the, the Plaid do less well they only win one seat but they had won a by-election I think in the in the latter part of the 1960s but the Welsh issue is ticking away for other reasons by the mid-1960s it's why the Queen makes such a big fuss about the investiture for Charles as of Prince of Wales understanding that resentment is growing and growing in Wales. The other point worth noting here is that there is a swing to the Conservatives from Labour in both Scotland and Wales in February 1974. So whereas the national swing is about 1% to Labour, in Scotland and Wales it's about 1% to the Conservatives. And that may be a case of the SNP implied taking some of those kind of protest votes, which in England go to Labour and the Liberals. So the result of all of this fragmentation is that this election that's set up as a kind of binary choice, a who governs Britain election, it's either the unions and the Labour Party or it's the anti-inflation Conservatives, it's very fragmented. The vote share between the two main parties is down. I mean, they're both below 40%, but it's pretty even. Heath wins less than a percentage point more votes, but Labour win more seats. And so we're in, no one has a majority territory, so it's a bit like, more like 2017, we don't know what's going to happen. 2019, we could be there again. I mean, quite soon, we could be there again. Heath's given the first opportunity by the Queen, is the current series of the Crown going to reach the February 1974 election? No one's watching. Probably not it. in this series. Not in this series. That's going to be a good one because that was it was one of those times where it really does matter. Apart from anything else, it's one of the pieces of political authority that the monarchy still has, which is the sequencing of inviting people to try and form a government. And the convention seemed to be that the sitting prime minister. It wasn't because he won the most votes, right? It was because he was in post. Heath was given a chance, but he failed. But it's also because it was the only way that a majority could have been constructed because of the Ulster Unionist question. Now, in the end, that they wouldn't actually support the Conservatives, and Heath miscalculated about that. But given that you couldn't have had the Ulster Unionists plus Labour, then the only way, in principle, to a majority was Conservatives plus Liberals plus Ulster Unionists. In a sort of coalition arrangement rather than a minority government arrangement. Yeah. So I mean, or, the, or a supply and... Yeah, or a supply and confidence arrangement. But he... Th- so it was another thing he got wrong. He, he misjudged it. Or he was never well, going to He misjudged succeed. the Ulster Unionists. He misjudged what... The, he, wasn't, the, he wasn't good at no, some No, I think he was pretty terrible at it. He misjudged the Ulster Unionists. He misjudged the Liberals. And really Harold Wilson just sat and waited because he knew that actually there wasn't going to be a government that Heath could form and that he was confident enough that even though that Labour couldn't construct a majority that it would be possible to basically call the Liberals bluff and that they wouldn't vote down a Queen's speech by a minority Labour government which they didn't. So I don't want to overdo the parallels but there does seem like an obvious way that this could be about I don't know what the result's going to be but say the Tories on the 13th of December have the most seats so it in, in that case, they didn't. In this case, they would. I think they almost certainly are going to have more seats than Labour, unless something really dramatic happens in the last three weeks of the campaign, Farage does a pal or whatever. But they can't come to an arrangement with the DUP, not the UUP anymore, it's the DUP. But presumably Johnson will be given by the Queen the first bite at it if he has 315 seats. But if he can't find a way to 
there's not going to be a coalition, but to come to an arrangement that would allow him to pass, among other things, a Queen's speech and a budget, it will fall to Corbyn as it did to Wilson? Or, or does the analogy break down? My reading of things is that Boris Johnson has an incentive to hold on until Parliament votes him out, because that would require a constructive vote of confidence in a new Prime Minister, i.e. would require Jeremy Corbyn to win a vote in Parliament, which would require the Lib Dems either to, to abstain or to support him, and would put them on the, on the spot in a way that in February, March 1974, the Liberals were not put on the spot because the conventions worked in a different way. And there's also, unlike then, the cliff edge, which is 31st of January. So it will be tight. 13th of December, if Johnson can hang on for six weeks, I mean, I, I've read things that say there is a, a number of seats that the Conservatives could get somewhere between about 318 and 322, which makes no deal suddenly come right back into the frame as a realistic possibility. Because if you cannot form an alternative government, we're back where we were in the autumn, which is the clock is ticking and we're back with Macron. I mean, that scenario has not completely disappeared, which is nothing like 74. No, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, the what's going on, the combination of the timetables about British withdrawal from the European Union and the very distinctive mechanics of the Fixed Term Parliament Act mean that we're in unprecedented territory now, and we have been for a while, that the situation we're talking about when we think about, as people were wargaming the result of the February 1974 election and thinking about the mechanics of forming a government, what people are looking at there are the same set of procedures that had been operating for 100 years or more, that the relationship between ministries and elections and so on. But it is very different now because of the peculiar mechanics of how to force an election and how much time is sometimes involved with these periods that the fixed term parliament calls for after a vote of no confidence goes through. And that's already had a substantial impact on our politics because in the in the autumn the you know, we had a government governing for weeks that did not have a majority, but the opposition parties weren't willing to vote it out by a form of vote of confidence because they couldn't see a way through the impasse that the fixed term parliament act created. The other difference it seems to me is that Wilson is not Jeremy Corbyn in the sense he'd been Prime Minister. It was not just a very experienced Labour front branch, it was almost too experienced. They were like they were famously yesterday's men and still there they all were. These were people who who knew government inside out, actually. And minority government is hard and it's complicated. And there was that James Graham play about the seventy four, seventy nine Parliament just showing just how attritional it is. And Experience probably does matter in these things. Whipping operations really matter, all of that. And even then, Wilson found it hard. Actually, that government only lasted for half a year. Were this to happen in this case, Corbyn and his team would be doing it. They are the opposite in the sense that the Labour front bench, the least experienced group of potential government ministers in, in modern British history. I mean, that may be a good thing. It's fresh and they're going to come in and when people say these are the rules, they may say, well, tell me what you like. But, but it's really hard to do that kind of politics from that basis. There is that. But one of the things that we've seen in the last few years is the Labour whipping operation is really good. And one sign of that is that, you know, everyone knows the Parliamentary Labour Party is not ideologically aligned with the leadership of the party. And we've had a very tight parliamentary mathematics in the House of Commons, and we've had this extraordinary crisis over Brexit. And yet, time and time again, the Labour Party has been able to issue a whip and hold it, 
Caroline Flint sometimes votes against. You know, there's a small number of malcontents who've regularly voted against the whip. But it's held in the overwhelming majority of cases. It's held with some really unlikely individuals. That's to say, Kate Hoey, who is as Brexity as they come, has uh, voted against the withdrawal agreement when it's been presented to the House of Commons. And that, I think, has to count for something. And that you're completely right, that goes against my argument, because the most experienced person in Labour is Nick Brown, the chief whip. I mean, I'm not saying yesterday's man in a derogatory sense. I mean, he goes way back. I mean, he was, after all, there in 2001, when foot and mouth meant that the election had to be delayed, and he was the agriculture minister. I mean, it, he, he's got more experience than anyone on the Conservative front. I, I somewhat disagree about this take, though, because I think it ignores the fact that the Labour whipping operation started off actually quite poorly once we get into the first meaningful vote and that it, it much improved with the second and the third meaningful vote. And I think if you look at the, there's a reasonable amount of evidence that the reason why it did was Tom Watson played a much larger role in affairs the later that it went on and Tom Watson is no longer going to be an MP. I think that it, it will depend on which Labour MPs come back, what seats have been held and which have been lost and potentially which have been gained. But I think if we go back to the February 74 parallels or non-parallels in this case, I mean, Wilson had a luxury, which was he'd fought on the renegotiation holder referendum and he never had any intention of delivering on that until he'd held another general election. So the thing that in some sense was perhaps more important than anything else ultimately in bringing Labour back to power, he kicked into touch and said, well, that has to wait until we've got a majority, which he was able to secure, obviously, although be it a very small one, in the October general election, whereas nobody's going to be able to kick this, whether it's the Conservatives winning or Labour winning, going to be able to kick this referendum Brexit issue right. into so touch in the way in which Wilson was able to. So, so the disanalogy here would be Corbyn couldn't say, yeah, I will do that thing I said I would yeah. do, but I'll need to have a majority before I can do it. Well, not least because he's not going to get a majority. He's got to deal with the fact that Article 50, as things stand, runs out on the 31st of January, so another extension's got to be procured. Is really going to then say to the EU, well, we've got to wait for that referendum that we've been saying that we'll have and those renegotiations until we've had another election. I think that even more than Macron's patience is going to run thin at this point. So I've got two more questions because we need to get on to October very briefly <laughs> at the end. So winter elections, they have an emergency quality to them, and this one does and that one did. One of the effects of this one has been this kind of cull of sitting MPs. A lot of MPs have decided they've had enough. A lot of seats have had to be filled quite quickly. There's quite a lot of rumblings on both both main parties about the way this has been done, about how candidates have been chosen. And there's a feeling there seems to be a certain amount of evidence that the parties that will come back to Parliament will have hardened in their positions around some of the central issues. So again, I don't like to say that they're going to be moving to extremes. I don't think it's extremism, but they will be less of a broad church than they were. I think particularly the Conservative Party is much less of a broad church than it was. I mean, every single candidate has had to sign this pledge that they will support Johnson's deal. Did anything like that happen in 74? The parties that came back to Parliament, they still seem to me to both have been pretty broad church parties. I think one of the things about the 74 election, the February 74 election, is that not that many seats actually changed hands. Fewer even, I think, than in 2017, that Labour made a few more than a dozen gains, the SNP made half a dozen gains, the Conservatives made the corresponding losses. 
but not that many seats were changing hands. And I don't think it was a great election for either retirements or defeats. The others may know more than I do, but I, I don't recall this as being an especially important part of the campaign, nor the October election either. There were shenanigans involving Christopher Mayhew, the former Labour MP who once got extremely high on national television, who kind of drifted from the Labour Party into the Liberal Party between the two elections. So when you say extremely high? Oh, he took some, I mean, I don't think it was... Not just on natural enthusiasm? No, 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 it was, it was, he was, I don't, can't remember if it was LSD or some other substance, but I mean, he, there was a TV programme where Christopher Mayhew, the Liberal politician, um, uh, had a trip on national television. They wouldn't do it these days, Uh, but you, you can get it on YouTube. One of the groups which finds the February 1974 result most difficult to deal with is the Labour right and particularly the Social Democrats around Roy Jenkins, because there has been talk before the 74 election about the possibility of some kind of realignment. Dick Tavern has resigned his seat in Lincoln and has been re-elected as Democratic Labour. There are some on the Labour right who have rebelled over Europe to support British entry into the EC and would quite like to work with the Liberals in some kind of realigned arrangement. Roy Jenkins goes back to the Home Office after the February 74 election and is deeply depressed because he doesn't think the programme Labour has been elected on involving big spending increases, nationalisation and so on is remotely credible. And within a couple of years, he has left British politics to become European Commission. And then a few years after that is back and does the thing that he might have done in the early 70s. Absolutely. I would say that two very divided parties come back is Labour over the EC issue and the Conservatives over the fact that Heath called the election in the way in which which he did and that the people, not just on the right of the party but some of the pragmatists in the party are just absolutely furious, I can't think of a better word to describe it with what Heath has done because they think he's thrown away a majority for no good reason whatsoever. So again, parallels with Theresa May, not Boris yeah. Johnson. And then by the time we get to the October election he's pretty much saying in the middle of the campaign we should have a national government involving all the parties. So he's sort of giving up on some idea of being a Conservative by the time we get to the October Again, 74. more like Theresa May than Boris Johnson. Ele- I mean, yeah. there are the parallels. Election, even after he's lost these two elections, he still doesn't want to give up. And there's a leadership challenge to him from Margaret Thatcher that eventually you know, produces her as the leader of the party and, and takes them off in a different direction. Now, I would suggest that that's not as ideologically different as it's sometimes presented it to be but the one thing that Thatcher is absolutely determined that the Conservatives will not do is go back to an incomes policy because that is seen as as the strategic mistake that Heath made. It seems to me another disanalogy here when people will look back on this election is it'll need to be traced back the fall of Theresa May coinciding with the European elections the remarkable result of the Brexit party the way that changed the dynamics in the Conservative party eventually and I think ultimately produced Boris Johnson's clear victory both among MPs and then among the members. So there's nothing in the 74 case, it's not like the thought of Powell's intervention or whatever kind of corrals the Conservative Party to try and not outflank, but at least neutralise that threat. There was a threat that was being neutralised here. There isn't an analogous threat as there in 74. And it therefore may, in this case, have produced, I don't think it's Brexitified the Conservative Party in the sense that people say that the Conservative Party is now the Brexit Party, but it's definitely going to change its parliamentary character in a way that doesn't seem to be true in 74. It's not like Powell's intervention produced a more Powellite Conservative Party, eventually produced a Thatcherite Conservative Party, but that's something different. I think that's right. I mean, go back to what Helen said a moment ago, that the the key transformation in the Conservative Party is the way that the backbenchers take control of the leadership, that Heath 
thinks he can hold on to the leadership after October 74, even when it's clear he can't continue as leader, the people around Heath think that they can pave the way for Willie Whitelaw to become conservative leader and basically have a kind of you know continuity Heathism. So then to reach back even further to what Helen was saying earlier, you know, Heath misjudged the um, Ulster Unionists, he misjudges the pay board, he misjudges the Liberals. In the end, he misjudges the state of the Conservative Party, that they're in an extremely bad mood with him after he's not just lost two elections in 74, but he's lost three of the four elections that he's he's contested. And there's no way back for him from there. So that's how the dynamic of transformation works. What it means is that you know Thatcher does win the leadership in 75, not because the Parliamentary Conservative Party is sold on the Thatcher, Joseph, and to some extent before that, kind of Enoch Powell approach to monetarism, but because she gets a great deal of kudos from being the person who was um, brave enough to stand up against the party leader in a party that still has a kind of cult of the leadership. And then she has this long struggle to remake the Conservative Party in in her image that extends right through the first term. It's only after the Falklands War that she really is in control of the politics of the situation. But that, I think, is where we see the, the, the beginning of the transformation of the Conservative Party, of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, of conservatism, to make it something much closer to what we have today. It's worth noting that Mrs Thatcher re-establishes her public reputation during the October 74 campaign by fronting up an extraordinary populist pledge to reduce mortgage interest rates to 9.5%, which is not a terribly free market policy. It involves government subsidy to to building societies. It's also a very specific number. Nine and a half percent. But it's designed to signal that the Conservatives are on the side of homeowners at a time of high interest rates and to win back voters from the Liberals or prevent further losses to the Liberals. But of course, there's always a tension there between Mrs. Thatcher's association with home ownership and the fact that when she comes into power, she has to put interest rates up to, to tackle inflation. And it was always said to be one of the differences between her and Reagan, and in some sense, it's actually her and Heath. Her great bogey in politics was high interest rates rather than inflation, actually. She was terrified of high interest rates always throughout her career because she was a homeowner politician. Which So Reagan, for instance, putting up interest rates to slay inflation freaked her out. It's another story. I think the interest... Helen's probably going to tell me it's wrong as well. I, I, I was going to miss that and go, some, go somewhere else. It's not quite right, but never mind that. <laughs> it, because it wasn't Reagan who did the interest rate, putting interest rates... It was Volcker under Carter, yeah. I know, sorry. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about the, the lessons that Thatcher and the people close to her take out of 74 is, is if it's an election that Heath tries to make about incomes policies and unions and turns out in significant part being about the European community and that the European community plays its perhaps decisive role via Powell in Labour winning, the lesson Thatcher takes out of it is all about the first issue. It's about taking the Conservatives away from that incomes policy territory. Now, I think that they were right in thinking that Heath made a terrible strategic mistake in trying to frame the election that way, but it's not actually really what cost them the votes perhaps so much because they lost a lot of seats in the Midlands, particularly in the West Midlands where Powell did resonate and with the arguments that he made. Now, if you move on then to 1975, all the divisions about the European community are much more on the Labour side in the ref- during the referendum than they are in the, on the Conservative side. So Mrs. Asher doesn't take the lesson from 1974 that European community is a potentially problematic issue for the Conservatives. Now, she might come to that conclusion 
right at the end of her career, but it's not the one that she draws from the 1974 election. Before we go, we do want to tell you about another podcast. If you would like a take on Brexit and the future of Europe that's a bit different from what you might get on Talking Politics, Another Europe is a podcast we think you'd enjoy. It's hosted by Zoe Williams and Luke Cooper, and they've just been to Northern Ireland to look at how high the stakes are there. Everybody became a troubled junkie. It was just mayhem. Brexit has the potential to break up the British state. It will inevitably stoke the fires of resistance against British rule in Ireland. These Brexit extremists are actually playing with fire. Could Brexit wreck the Northern Irish peace process? We sent Luke Cooper and Zoe Williams to Northern Ireland to find out. Find our two-part documentary, The Forgotten Troubles, by searching for the Another Europe podcast on your podcast platform. That story about Northern Ireland comes in two parts. The first episode is published today. The second will be out next week on the 27th. Next week on our podcast, we've got two episodes. Both of them are going to be about the influence of big tech and elections, including this one, what's really going on, Facebook, WhatsApp, fake news, all of it. If you want to discuss that, or today's episode, or any of the things we talk about on Talking Politics, you can now go to the LRB blog at lrb.co.uk. There's a forum there where you can chat online with other Talking Politics listeners. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. That was good. Thanks. I'm glad we didn't really talk about the October election. There's no, nothing interesting about it. Well, apart from, I didn't know the thing about the 9.5%. Yeah. That was great, Peter. Thank you. It is kind of interesting, though, that he, in the middle, basically, says, let's form a national government. You're in the middle of a campaign, and he says, oh, let, let's just forget about But that parties. had been trailed throughout the summer. Yeah. And it was but, seen as a way of getting the Liberals back. But he wasn't, he wasn't really, yeah. though... I mean, lots of people in the Conservative Party were furious about him about how hard he went on it in the yeah. middle of the camp in, yeah. the, in the middle of the campaign. I mean, it must—it was probably the wettest campaign the Tories have ever run in opposition, mm. and I think they even say they will put interest, they will put income tax up if necessary, to subsidise mortgages, increase domestic food production, and raise pensions. I mean, it's, a, it's an extraordinary Tory manifesto. Yeah, yeah. those right. were the days. Politics was weird back then. I learned a lot from that. <laughs>